It's Kubrick's universe, the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Your notes and your breakdown you sent to me were absolutely fantastic, a big help. I had actually, to be honest with you, Stephen, I'd kind of forgotten what film came first, because Johnny and I worked together for 11 years, and for much of that time, we were cross-fertilizing with Stanley. Yeah. You know, Johnny would go and make an expensive movie with Stanley and be gone for whatever time. It was usually a long time. Mm -hmm. And then he'd retreat and come to me and do a little low budget movie, which they all were low budget movies. And then he'd flip back to Stanley. And that went on for about three different movies. You know, it was interesting. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in once again to Kubrick's Universe. At the boards is the inimitable, indefatigable, and occasionally indistinguishable from his mirror image, Stephen Rigg. Try saying that three times fast. And I am your host, Jason Furlong, Jason Furlong, Jason Furlong. No, 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 wait, wait, that's not what I meant. And I am here to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So anyway... Stuart Cooper has made significant contributions to the film industry as an accomplished actor, writer, and director. His early acting career in the 1960s showcased his talent through various film and TV appearances, including his notable role as Roscoe Lever in the 1967 classic war film The Dirty Dozen, in which young Stuart held his own among such heavyweight actors as Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, and Donald Sutherland. However, Stewart's passion always lay in directing, and he eventually pursued this path wholeheartedly. He directed his first feature film, Little Malcolm and His Struggle Against the Unix, in 1974. The film was very well received. It starred John Hurt and David Warner, and was based on a play by David Hallowell. Little Malcolm and His Struggle Against the Unix established Stewart's directorial skills, winning him the Berlin Silver Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival that year. Yet it was his second film, Overlord, released in 1975, that truly solidified his position as a notable director. Overlord is a remarkable fusion of documentary and fiction, recounting the story of a young soldier killed during the D-Day landings in Normandy. Combining meticulously upgraded images of actual archival war footage with impeccably crafted scenes shot by Stewart, the film created a haunting and impactful experience that garnered international acclaim and again won him the Berlin Silver Bear at the Berlin Film Festival. Today, Overlord remains a hallmark of cinema preserved by the Criterion Collection, and we can't recommend it highly enough. Through his unique storytelling approach and innovative visual aesthetics, Stewart continues to inspire and influence filmmakers and cinephiles worldwide. Today, Cooper remains an esteemed figure in the entertainment industry, and his work continues to captivate audiences. Now, Stuart Cooper and Stanley Kubrick had an interesting career parallel throughout the 1970s. Both had the distinction of using cinematography legend John Alcott on three films. For Stuart, the films were Little Malcolm, Overlord, and The Disappearance. 
Stanley utilized the brilliance of Alcott as cinematographer on A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining. Oh, and we also have for you a very rare recording that Stewart personally asked Stanley Kubrick to make as a tribute to John Alcott following Alcott's death in 1986. And you're going to hear that in this episode. So get ready to hear Stewart speak with us about working with Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, Orson Welles, George Harrison, and John Hurt. We, of course, also discuss 2001, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and how Stewart got to know Stanley Kubrick. We spoke to Stewart in March 2023. Hey, Stuart, thanks so much for joining us. How's it going, man? Good. It's good to be here. It's good to talk to you guys. Yeah, awesome to have you. Thanks. So uh, before we get into the vastness of your experience in Kubrick's universe, want to go back to the very beginning, the very best place to start. How about asking you about The Dirty Dozen, which in 1967 you were in, was, of course, directed by Robert Aldrich. 17 miles northeast of London, an unusually rugged group of actors begin the first sequences for a new motion picture, The Dirty Dozen. It is here that Lee Marvin will star in his role as the leader of some of the toughest guys on or off a movie set. And you had done a lot of TV work in England prior to that in the 60s uh, when you got your first job working on Dirty Dozen. Do you recall how you got the job? I do, and I I recall it very vividly because I remember going up to Seven Arts, which is where Bob had his office. It had been uh, preceded by, I had a phone call, or actually had a meeting with, I had an agent in London at the time, and he called me and he said, look, they're doing this picture called The Dirty Dozen. The director is here, and the producer, Kenny Hyman, is here, and they're um, they're looking for six Americans to kind of fill in the background. There's 12 main characters. The main 12 are coming from Hollywood. But they want they want Americans to 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 be the shadow and back it all up. Orders from U.S. Army Headquarters, 1944. Select 12 prisoners sentenced to death or lengthy prison terms for crimes of violence. Train them, then deliver them secretly behind the lines on a suicide mission. John Cassavetes, football star Jimmy Brown, death by hanging. Clint Walker, Charles Bronson, 30 years, hard labor, 20 years, hard labor, Trini Lopez, death by hanging, Kelly Savalas, initially I went to see Bob Aldrich, who was fabulous, by the way, mm. all the way across the board, I have to say that, not only, not only as a man, but also as a director and also as a friend. And I'll talk to you later about how he helped me when I started to direct films. Um, but I went to see Bob. It wasn't a long interview, but we got talking and he said, where are you from? I said, Newport Beach. He said, what the fuck? You're living here in England from what are you doing in England? I said, well, Bob, I just graduated from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. That kind of threw me. He said, well, that's fucking impressive. That's very impressive. <laughs> Um, he asked me a little bit what I was doing. Um, and I told him I'd been doing a couple of TV shows. I did quite a few television shows. And I'd actually been back to America and did a very small series, the Great Adventure series, before I came back, ran back to, to London. And uh, uh, the conversation went on. But but the essence of the conversation was finally he told me about the show, what, what was needed. It was a long shoot. It was originally going to be scheduled for, I think, 18 weeks 
that sounds right to me. It went 28 weeks. Mm. It was 16 week contract. Uh, but it, because it went so over time, it created a lot of problems. And one of the, one of the problems, of course, was Trini Lopez. In mm. any event, um, he said, so, uh, Chuck, my, he said, so uh, out of the blue, he said to me, what about Vietnam? I hadn't expected it, but I'd already so conditioned myself that I was in England because I had no fucking intention of going to Vietnam. Mm. Mm. And, but I, I knew, and, and actually I had been called up and my papers had missed me when I left the United States, mm. but I knew the draft board would be sending me more papers and it was on the cards. Mm. But I thought as long as I stayed in the UK, I had a pretty, pretty good chance of, of staying out of Vietnam. Mm. I said, it's not a problem, Bob. I said, I got to cover it. I will not be going to Vietnam. I guarantee it. Mm. He looked at me and he said, you got the job. Wow. You got the job. Wow. It all took maybe, maybe, maybe 20 minutes I was in there. And that's kind of how, those are the kind of key things and how it happened. Mm -hmm. So I got the job and, uh, and there we were. Director Aldrich, functioning very much like a general, spends weeks commanding the huge troop movements that involve over a thousand actors and technicians. Now, he, you know, gave you your first big job, as it were. Just curious, like, how you did get your first break in show business, because, of course, you were you were working steadily throughout the 60s, and we're just curious how you got into acting. Well, I, I was always, and not to be boring, I go back to childhood and all that shit, um, <laughs> I was always interested in theater and film from the time I can remember. And so I was always doing theater work, whether I was in high school or college and all the rest of it. And in my first year of college, I decided to audition for the Royal Academy in London. And I went to New York to make that audition. And they, they, there were 125 Canadians and Americans auditioning for six places at the Academy. And I just lucked out. Wow. I got a place. And uh, I, I dropped out of college, went to work as a busboy to save some money, mm -hmm. went to England. Mm -hmm. and um started and became a student there in a great class of people I, i'll touch on that it's kind of interesting um because it relates to my later work but uh, i went to the academy where i studied for several years uh graduated from the academy and slowly began to pick up a little bit of work in england mainly on television not so much theater mainly television work a couple of films um a, uh, one of the the saint episodes of just television stuff where they needed americans right mm. But just backing up a second, I want you to know, in my class, in my actual classroom at the academy, was Anthony Hopkins was one of my was one of my, oh, my wow. mates, Ooh. one of my students. Yeah, wow. Um, Ian McShane was Ooh, with us wow. at that time. David Warner was there. Wow. And he was just he was just ahead of me. Wow. And John Hurt, who, and I and I ended up working with most of these people. I've wow. worked with Ian McShane. I uh, I've worked with Warner and Hurt, as you know. Yeah. So there was a, a relationship had been created there as students, you know, yeah. and this is like, this would be early, early 60s, like 61, 62, 63. Mm. So essentially, to answer your question, I, I kind of just went from the academy, I got an agent, and slowly started to pick up a little bit of work as an American in the UK. Wow. I ended up... Um, not as long as Stanley, but I ended up living in the UK for 23 years before I kind of came back to the United States. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so that, that's kind of that part of it. Between what years? <clears throat> Those 23 years? So, were. 61, 62 until about 82 
around 82, I came back to pick up this. I was, I was brought on to direct this huge miniseries called AD. It was being produced by NBC and was the follow on to a very important uh, film called a, a series called Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And this was the follow on <clears throat> by the same by the same producer, uh, Vincenzo Labella. And he he and again, here's this, which is interesting. Not to deviate and make it too complex, but one of the reasons I was angling back to the U.S., apart from the fact that I wanted to I I began to feel I needed to reestablish my roots in America because I'd been in the UK so long. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went back and the Z channel and Jerry Harvey had discovered overlord at that time and called me in the middle of the night in London and said, who the fuck are you? <laughs> I said, what? He said, my name is Jerry Harvey. I run this thing called the Z channel. I've just seen overlord. What else have you fucking made? And why are you living in England? Why are you an expat? Why aren't you living here? Who the, what, what? He said, what else have you made? It was, it was just like that. that that's yeah. kind of who he was. Right. Right. So I, at four o'clock in the morning in London, I'm rattling off. Like, he said, will you send me all your films? I said, of course. He said, I want to I see all your work. So I sent him all the documentaries. I sent him The Disappearance, Overlord, Little Malcolm, all this crap. And he said, give me a month. Give me a month. And... Uh, I gave him a month and sure enough, he called me and he had an agent there who he introduced me to a great agent in, in, in LA. And he said, I've got it. I got an offer for, I got a deal for you. He said, I'd like to put all your films. This is God's truth. I'd like to put all your films on the Z channel every day for one month. There will be a Stuart Cooper film wow. or two on the Z channel. And I said, I couldn't ask for anything more. He said, the deal is I need you to come to the States two months ahead of time so that we can show the film or films one-on-one -on -one to all the key critics in Los Angeles. I said, done, I'm happy to do it. Mm. So essentially what we did, I came there with prints, with all my prints and everything, and we ran the shows one-on-one, -on -one, Charles Champlin, Arthur Knight, all these important critics and showed them one or two films. And then I would have lunch with them and talk to them um, and they all wrote wonderful things. I mean, out of the blue, I was getting all kinds of great press, you know, in uh, the in Variety, in Time, in, you know, the L.A. Times and all the rest of it. And then the shows all came on television and they were there and it was really great. So for and because of Z Channel and because of my films being there, uh, Vincenzo Labella, who was the producer of of uh, uh, of A.D., um, found me. And David Warner was working for him on the, or had been working for him at the time. <clears throat> and David said, I want you to come and meet Vincenzo. I had lunch with him. And basically from that lunch on, I was pretty much on board for a, for, for this project AD, which was a 12 hour mini series for NBC that we shot in, in uh, Tunisia, in North Africa. It was a 235 day shoot with 400 speaking roles and it was all financed by Procter & Gamble. Wow. My budget was $23 million, the whole show, because Procter & Gamble bought all the um, they bought all the advertising space. I think the total bill was $60 million. Jesus. Oof. And that's 1985, 1986. Right. And that's kind of what really brought me back to the U.S. That's yeah. how I kind of yeah. That's how I got back. So, I thought he was going to say, when you flew back in 82, like, did you go down to the local military draft office and go, did you guys have any mail for me? 
Did I miss something while I was away? <laughs> well, you know, they could be scary because before I, I had come to California when I'd graduated out of the academy and I did this very nice series, uh, the great, which I mentioned, the great, great adventure series with David McCullum, who had just snagged the role for Man for Uncle mm. and came to England to live later to do a show um, with Wagner called The Great, uh, The Coldest Story for the BBC and lived in my basement. I was oh, going to say, where is this going? Did you swap apartments? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's kind of amazing how these things go. And when I was in California and doing the series, I was trying to, I, I thought, how am I going to, I'm not going to Vietnam. How am I going to avoid? So I tried to join up with the, um, you know, with the guard, the local guard uh, in Los Angeles. And I'll never forget this meeting. So I go in and I'm, I'm very young and I'm, and I'm scared to death about the draft. And I go into this office for the recruiting office for the army in Westwood. And I say, I'd like to join, I'd like to join the guard. And he looked at me and I've always had kind of long hair and I always looked like I look. (laughs) And he said, yeah. He said, what do you do? I said, well, I'm an actor. And he said, fuck you. He said, you like like those fucking ball players, those baseball players who never show up for meetings. He said, you know what we're going to do? He said, you know what we're going to do with you? I said, don't tell me. He said, we're going to give you a rifle. We're going to suit you up Mm -hmm. and we're going to send you to NAM. You ready? Mm-hmm. And I said, fuck you. And I walked out of the office. Good for you, man. <laughs> here, here. Good because man. That's how, yeah. I mean, it was very tense then. I mean, everybody was being called. It was it was a mess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. So you were able to skip over that and yeah. fortunately ended up being in the Dirty Dozen. And you played Roscoe Lever. Lever. R. 20 years imprisonment. One of the dozen, of course, amongst some of the biggest uh, film stars of the day. You got Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, Telly Savalas, of course, John Cassavetes. Got to ask, you know, generally recollect what that was like for you as a young actor. Daunting. It was very daunting. The first time we all met before rehearsals started uh, was a, a cocktail party thrown in a, uh, upstairs in a hotel, a hotel uh, reception area. And I think everybody was there because mm. we were going into rehearsals in a, in a day or two. And Bob, very smartly, had brought the entire cast, even the small parts. He had everybody there. So walking into that room, a little bit shaky, of course, and meeting everybody and sizing everybody up mm. and um, and feeling very, you know, let's say green in that company. Mm-hmm. Green would be, mm-hmm. yeah. But the evening was fine. It turned into um, a big drinking evening. I remember getting, mm. I think I got quite drunk. And I remember going to dinner, being taken to dinner by one somebody who became a friend later, Mort Eckelberg, Mort Eckelberg who was head of the publicity and um, having dinner with him. But I have a feeling I was very rude to him at dinner for some reason I can't phantom. But um it was like that. So it was kind of a daunting evening. We met everybody. Uh, I do remember that Lee was kind of the center of attraction, which is not unusual. And uh, I mean, he's so compelling and so interesting. So a lot of the group were around Lee trying to get a word in, get a word, you know, what have you. Right. We met people. I think the the top six kind of were looking at us and saying, well, are these guys going to be OK? Are they going to get through this? 
Uh, we were all pretty young. I met Donald there for the first time. I know you've done Colin Maitland. I think he was there. Tom Busby was there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it was just, it, it was a general meeting. So in reference to Lee Marvin's like outsized presence, it's, yes. it's no uh, secret that he and Charles Bronson famously did not get along during the shooting. Were you in proximity enough to pick up on that kind of animosity? Well, I picked up on it probably every morning. Mm-hmm. But you <laughs> stayed away from it. Well, you shied around it. I'll, I'll give right, you a right. Somebody, I can't remember who said to me about Charlie um, that he was he was a de- he was a depressive that he was constantly yeah. depressed. Okay, and and I think that's probably true because oftentimes in the morning when we'd arrive early, particularly when we were out doing the uh, all the camp stuff, yeah, you know, which was out out in Albans, we're outside of London. I think we were at Albans is where is where we did the camp. We built the camp, but I. You know, it it wouldn't be uncommon to arrive on set in the morning and walk past Charlie and say, hey, Charlie, good morning. How are you? And the answer usually would be, fuck off. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And I'm not making it up. That's kind of how it was sometimes. Other times it would be great when when he was happy and getting into things. During the rehearsal period, one thing I do recall vividly, so we were – on a big sound stage for two weeks, getting costumes sorted out, getting hair sorted out. We were also being trained by a regular guy from England to train us in you know, protocol, lining up and all the kind of stuff we were supposed to do, all the protocol, dress right, dress, all that stuff. And um, I remember vividly that Lee and Charlie suddenly got into this argument about the way we were being taught to do this particular maneuver. And Marvin was, he was Marine and Charlie was Army and they got really got quite into it. And we were kind of backing off. I remember looking across the room with Richard Jekyll and Jekyll giving me a kind of nod and they were getting a little bit heated. And I think that, I think that um, Lee was maybe enjoying kind of keeping it steamed up. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it got a little bit out of hand. And Bob Aldrich, very impressive, short man, heavy set with a big double chin, stepped right between them, right in their face, right between them, and said, listen, you cocksuckers, you're going to do it the way you're being instructed. That's how we're doing it. Do you understand? That's how we're doing it. Right. <laughs> and that sorted it out. Done. Right. Done. Right. Just like that. Yeah. Right. So they, we had these rough moments, but you know, there's a lot of testosterone hanging around this set, as you can imagine. Yeah. London is switched on seven days a week. The stars have time for only one of those days. Some, like Ernest Borgnine and Robert Ryan, have families with them and do a tour of the town. The others take a break on King's Row, the main stem of London's mod world. Swinging London is an ideal setting for these men, action guys enjoying themselves on the town. The restless vitality of the city seems to charge their batteries, set them up for another six days of grueling work before the cameras. Did you find yourself uh, finding your feet, so to speak, with the socializing aspects? I mean, you were there from 
uh, April to uh, October of 66, all shot in the south of England. You were there for the full six months, I take it? I was. You okay. see, I think they, did, it, did, it, did it get a little easier, the, the social lubricant of alcohol, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, it did because we were asked to do press things. And there, there's a, because, we, because the Dirty Dozen was being sort of promoted at the time, and we were all there. All these actors were there. There was a lot of news stuff and there's a lot of promotion stuff we were asked to do. We can talk a little bit about that. It got easier. I think everybody, <clears throat> excuse me, I think everybody kind of found their niche mm. pretty early on, <clears throat> you know, and how they fit in. Um, and it went on the set fairly smoothly most of the time. I mean, there were some ups and downs. Uh Something that didn't that wasn't in our control at all is one of the problems was the weather was very unkind to us. Other people probably talked about that during the entire shoot. Mm. <clears throat> Bob Walsh actually wanted to move the picture <clears throat> to Spain because he knows that he knew it was going to go over. So it did. We went from I think about an eighteen day, eighteen week shoot to probably twenty eight weeks, and that caused a lot of problems. Sure. So there was that, but you know I think it was relatively smooth. The dozen, the six of us who were there for the background. We're pretty much on call every day because that's what we were there for. You know, I don't I, I don't think we had many days off. I, I remember being on set most of the time. Right. Um, so, we, you know, and you found you, groups kind of got established. You found a way. You made friends. You did the you did the day's work. Sometimes I'd ride home with Jimmy Brown because they all had cars and drivers. And we were all had, a, had to get get into um, out to L Street or out l street by ourselves mm. so we were you know us six were always leeching until we got cars right leeching rides from people sometimes i get a ride back with lee i got to know lee very well um a little antidote to the rehearsal period um is that i was actually we did a little bit of shooting on stage after the rehearsal period and bob kept me for a moment because he wanted to do a shot and I did that. It didn't take long. And I remember, and everybody else had been excused, had been uh, had wrapped. And I remember leaving, talking to Bob for a few seconds. I remember leaving and coming to my dressing room, which was downstairs off the stage. And Lee had the star, the star dressing room upstairs. And Lee was sitting on the stair like this. And just sitting there. And I said, are you okay? He said, no, my back, my back. I said, oh, I might have heard about the thing about his back, that he had this bad back and there's a piece of shrapnel still in there from mm. the war. And I guess I was told or learned that the shrapnel sometimes would start to cause you real trouble mm. once a month or whatever. And maybe that is when the drinking would kind of begin, perhaps, mm -hmm. some of the drinking bouts. But anyways, could you help me up upstairs? So I helped him up. He was great. I helped him upstage. He was really suffering. He was in pain. He said, it'll go away. Uh, just he laid on the couch. He said, "Get me a. Would you hand me a beer from the fridge? Get one for yourself." <laughs> I got him a beer from the fridge. Pop it <clears throat> there. I took one. I said, "Can I? Do you want me to get the driver? Do you want me?" He said, "No, I'll be fine. I'll call the driver in a minute. Um, I'm happy. Thanks for getting me up in the room." And that was kind of the, one of the first early on kind of direct contacts that mm. I had with Lee. Mm. Yeah, it's, and it's very interesting. But mm. um, no, he was terrific. He was absolutely terrific. Good way to bond with a heavyweight when yeah. you're starting out. Help help well, yeah. him out, help him up the stairs, and hand him well, a beer. And hand him a beer. <laughs> and of course, the thing is, if you were paying attention, which I was, 
um, and probably this is the most, probably the best part for me of being in the dozen, because I already had made up my mind that I wanted to direct more than anything, that that's kind of what my, I'd already made that decision that the acting was really stepping stones to being a director. Mm. So to be on on set of the dozen every day and watch it work, watch Aldrich work, watch Marvin, who is fascinating to watch, um, <clears throat> was probably the, the best part of the dozen for me because there wasn't a lot for me to do. I was running around, you know, with, with a machine gun and doing this and doing mm. that, but there, there wasn't a lot of acting required. Right. It was just me being a body, one of the one of the twelve bodies. So right. that was a very important aspect to me and was a big help in, in stepping forwards. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, actors uh, being, you know, who they are, um, and of course everyone is different, but when I was a kid, Trini Lopez was a guy on the cover of a record that my dad had, and it was a, it was always a joke. I mean, my dad is a, you know, longtime rock and roller and him and one of his best friends, they would always make jokes about Trini Lopez. And if they played a wrong note, they'd be OK, whatever, Trini, you know, get it together. They didn't regard him highly. But, you know, if I had a hammer, I guess. Right. Because he did leave right. the film and, you know, pain in the ass situation like that. You were close to it. We're going to ask, like, what did you see? What do you know? What can you say? Well, I don't know how much you've been told, but <clears throat> about as it became clear that we were going to run over and be quite a few weeks beyond our contracted period, and it was all being talked about and uh, everybody knew, Trini um, was getting very nervous because he wanted to go. He said he had some dates he had, or maybe he didn't have any dates, but you know, Trini had, Trini had, Trini was fine. He did have a hard time. He was a little bit like a duck out of water, even though everybody was very good to him. I don't think anybody treated him badly or anything. I think he was, he was, he was made part of the group um, as much as anybody. Mm. But I think he felt a little bit out of his out of his scope, as it were. In any event, as it became clear we were going to run quite a long ways over on the shoot, he apparently. This is what I've been told. He apparently his manager was was. Frank Sinatra. You probably knew that or didn't know that. Mm, I may have, but go on. He he was being managed by Sinatra, who was his man, and he called Sinatra and said, they're going to run over 10, 12 weeks or whatever it's going to be, and I've had enough. I want to come home. I want to leave. I've got my music and everything. And it was Sinatra who pulled the plug and said, come home. Okay, yeah. Just come home. So I think it was it was really done at that kind of a level, and I think Sinatra probably just made it happen. And uh, and seriously, we were just stepping up to do this chateau sequence. It was the first night of the chateau sequence, mm-hmm. and Bob Aldridge arrived at night and said, "Trini's gone." And everybody said, "What do you mean he's gone?" He said, "He's gone home." <laughs> he said, "You're almost <laughs> anticipating like, did he pass away in his sleep?" What do you mean he's got home? <laughs> <laughs> and so we, Bob was very cautious and told us a little bit. I didn't hear about the Sinatra stuff until much, much later. And anyway, and when somebody else said, is he coming back? They no, he's not coming back. And so right there and then, Bob and the, all of us started to chip in, say, well, how do we write him out? How do we get, you know, how do we get rid of him? And so we had apparently just 
just parachuted in. Where the hell have you been? We're six minutes late. We've been looking for him and his hand. So I don't know who came up with the line because it couldn't be more ridiculous. We found him hung up in an apple tree. His neck's broken. You mean he's dead? That's exactly what I mean. That's the best we could come up with as 12, 14 people tried to pick a line to get rid of Trini on the night he's supposed to be there. Right. I think it was a cherry tree. It worked perfectly in the story. I was going to say, yeah. And it was perfect timing. That was a perfect time for him to disappear, wasn't it? there have been 12 of you doing up the, all the training for the first three quarters of the film, and then suddenly you're at the, the final the final mission. The mission's about to start with 11 of you. So at least he made it to the mission, didn't he? He just didn't quite uh, make it alive. <laughs> he just didn't quite make it. It almost touched. It gives you a little bit of the, the, the Hitchcock thing, too, where you get attached to a character and, oop, they're dead. They're gone, yeah. The thing was, going back to the thing about how, how we all grouped up, you know, by this time, we'd become a fairly, you know, we were a very comfortable group together, you know. Um, everybody everybody was good with each other. There was no there was no angst going on anywhere that I remember amongst all of us. Mm. We were all kind of keyed up to get on with the, you know, with the Chateau sequence. It was a big sequence. We'd seen the Chateau. We knew we were going to blow the whole place up. Um, it were anxious. So it was all a bit shocking to arrive that night all ready. Let's go. Let's go, mm-hmm. boys. <laughs> and and uh sorry trini's not going to show up but everybody's really a bit astounded i think yeah it's 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 shocking to learn about the the sinatra angle because at that time he would have had enough leverage to go up against mgm and say no I'm, yeah I, i'm his manager i'm taking him off the set i mean one that, guy but that one guy is sinatra going up against the studio and and you're 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 absolutely right, Jason. That's exactly what happened. Uh, he, he called MGM. It went to the top, right to the top, and he said, "I'm taking my boy out. I'm wow. putting him on a plane. He's getting on the plane." So Sinatra simply said, "Pack your bags, get on the plane, come home. Wow. Just come home. Wow. Don't report to anybody. Just go. I'll wow. take care of everything else." Wow. Well, you know, when the Dirty Dozen was being made out at MGM Studios in 1967. I don't know. Has anyone ever told you what other films were at MGM Studios at that very moment? I can't think. I, I might have come across. I can't think off the top of my head. Info, but no. Go on. So, two thousand and one was still being made there. They'd shot. They'd shot out the main part of it with with uh, Jeff Unsworth, the photographer who did the original live action shooting for about sixteen weeks, and then Stanley had all this other idea about all these model shots and everything. And up until that point, Johnny had just been his focus puller. And Johnny was probably, Johnny Olka was probably one of the best focus pullers in, in all of England mm. and really totally understood lenses and what they did and really educated Stanley about the lenses and what could be done, which was later reflected in Barry, in Barry Lyndon, mm. the, way he, the way he photographed Barry Lyndon. Mm. But at the same time, so Johnny was out there, I hadn't met him yet, was out there doing all the model work for Stanley. Casino Royale was being shot wow. at mm. that time with David Niven and mm-hmm. uh, Allen and all that. That was going on. Um, what else is on? So there's the Dirty Dozen, Casino Royale, 2001, and in the very back lot, an obscure director and his girlfriend were making a Frankenstein movie or a horror film. You know who it was? Tony uh, 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 Polanski, 
and Sharon Tate. Oh, dear. Oh, the vampire, wow. the fearless vampire killers, was it? Fearless vampire killers, right, right. And they were in the, they were in the small, I remember, because they were always talking, because they never showed up around lunchtime. We never saw them, because you could imagine what the uh, the canteen was like every day with all this group of people. It was a huge group. Um, and all the dozen were there. We, we actually started rehearsals there. When we first, we were there for two weeks rehearsing. And, uh, but they were this, everybody talked about them. There was this strange group in this, you know, the back lot in the crappiest little stage. And they were making this, and, and who was Polanski and who was Sharon Tate, right. or, you know. Right. So that that's what was going on at the time of the making of the DD. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That yeah. is a convergence of uh, yeah. near epic proportions. If you Amazing, really. take it all in. Some talent hanging around then, weren't there? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And by the way, at that time, that point in time, because uh, MGM was right across the street from Elstree, which is where Stanley actually ended up making The Shining, and where I, uh, when I, which is where I really did meet him. Um, and uh, MGM was, without question, the all-time studio. It was just a great studio. The facilities were fantastic. You know, we built the chateau for the Dirty Dozen on the back lot. That was yeah. all there as well. Um, <clears throat> it was a great studio, and I believe it's now a meat locker. Uh, of course it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Like uh, Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland Studios in uh, Manhattan is now a bank. Great, great. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah. We can't turn, anyway. uh, turn enough uh, great, you know, landmarks in popular culture into something corporate. We're not, yeah. we're not moving fast enough on that. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, it mm-hmm. really is a shame. As long as you don't paint over the, the, the crossing on Abbey Road. Yeah, right, right. Can you imagine here, if here. that happened? Here, here. <clears throat> Can you imagine? They might as well shut the studio down, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I th- I think some people would be rioting on Abbey Road. <laughs> Hell, I'd fly over there just to riot on Abbey Road. One man with a placard. You touched on uh, earlier uh, working with Robert Aldrich and... Um, being a young actor, could I ask in a general way, like what he was like to work with, especially as a young actor? Did he uh, was he the kind of director who, you know, stood back and said, work it out? Or was he more, you know, uh, hands on in his approach to what he wanted, expected from his actors? Do you recall? I think that, um, it's, you know, what it's a very good question. And it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to answer because. Because Bob was. I mean, he was a real, I'm not going to say control master, but he had a very, very solid game plan of what he wanted to do and what he expected. Hmm. I think part of the answer is that all of the actors, he, all the main actors he's dealing with, um, you know, with Marvin and Robert Ryan and Savalas and Cassavetes and what have you, there wasn't much, the roles were pretty clear. The film was pretty clear what we were doing. I don't think there was a lot that Bob had to do in terms of directorial work to enhance the actor's performance. I know he did work. I know I I, I know he worked with Jimmy Brown because Jimmy Brown was absolutely new to acting. Um, so I don't think he over had an overworking job in terms of trying to explain to an actor what the scene was about or how to work it out. Some of the action stuff had to be worked out, and he was very good at that. When we did the actions, I mean, this is all Bob. We didn't even use hardly use the stunt guy. Uh, when we did the fight scene between um, Posey with the knife mm-hmm, and Marvin, mm-hmm. you know, and he taunts him and taunts him. 
I sat there and watched that whole sequence come together. We spent the morning on it, and I saw Bob really put the choreography of that scene together and work it and work it very simply. Mm. So, I mean, Bob was very experienced. So I think he would touch when he needed to touch and step back when he knew everything was fine. Mm. So yeah. with us green people, he watched us. He occasionally would say something. The one piece of direction I remember getting is when I um, when I had to run. I had this machine gun. And I had to go upstairs uh, during the the uh, the chateau sequence and go on top of the boathouse, which I eventually get into the boat later. And I got the machine gun up on the parapet. And it was all ready, and I had my sh- I had a couple of shots of me firing at some tanks and things like that. And I had a line. I can't remember what the line was. Bob was right there. And uh, he stopped. He said, Come. He said, Hey, Stu. I said, What? He said, You sound a bit Boston. Or is it or is it English? <laughs> uh, you sound a little upper class. Can you can we can you take it down a little? Right. That was one of my yeah. <laughs> but but overall he was there. <clears throat> if you had problems, <clears throat> he was there. Um uh, to talk to and uh, and to help. So Interesting. Good. It sounds in a way almost, uh, I won't <clears throat> say parallel, but it, you did remind me a little bit of what we know about Stanley's approach to working with actors. Of course, he expected you to, I hired you because I know you know what to do. But I think one of the general misperceptions that a lot of folks who aren't as deep down the Kubrick well think is that, uh, you know, he was a control freak, but f- by all accounts, he was a very malleable uh, and open to, uh, you know, the the input of just about anyone. Um, it sounded to me a little bit like Aldrich was approaching with a similar methodology when it comes to working with the actors. Is that accurate? I think so. I think very much so. Mm. Um, I think that with those direct, what I've learned, I think, having become a director and, uh, and picked the brains of other directors, is I think you cast in a way um, where you expect the actor to bring you things. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the kind of fair trade as opposed to lumbering <clears throat> lumbering the, the, the actor, <clears throat> excuse me, lumbering the actor with all of your input. Give the actor, have the conversation about what the character is, what you're expecting, this and that, and then leave it with the actor to do his homework, give him as much information as you possibly can, including location work and all the rest. Sure. Let the actor then develop his character and bring you the goods, mm-hmm. you know? And then if you, if you need to fine tune a little bit, then you fine tune. But oftentimes the actor's work is what you're waiting for. And oftentimes that's very exciting because they bring, sometimes bring things that you haven't even thought about. Mm-hmm. Sure. So sure. it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a two way street. Hmm. Yeah. So, okay, now, speaking of Kubrick, while you're there shooting The Dirty Dozen, the MGM backlot, Kubrick is working on 2001. You, of course, would go on to meet him. You know, the release of 2001, we got to ask, like, do you recall seeing it on its release? I remember seeing it as soon as it was released. Um, And I I can't remember what theater it was, but it was in London where I saw it. And uh, and I thought it was fantastic. It blew my mind, of course. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. I know a few a few interesting I, I learned a few interesting stories about that which might might be interesting to you and I only just flashed on them. Um after I'd gotten to this is a little bit of a backup thing, but what after I'd gotten to know Stanley, I called him once 
when I was on my way back to Los Angeles and I was trying to set up the disappearance with Donald Sutherland. Mm -hmm. And I called him <clears throat> and uh, I said, Stanley, because I'd heard he had a very good, a very good lawyer in Los Angeles. I said, Stanley, I'm trying to get the finance and put this show together in LA. I'm desperate to find a really good law firm because I know I'm going to need it. And he said, totally understand. Let me introduce you to my guy. Um, and his name was Louis Blau, a famous lawyer. I think he's dead now at Loeb and Loeb, which one of the, one of the, at that time was one of the major law firms in Hollywood. And he offered that he made the introduction. He sent a letter or made a call. And so I went and had lunch with Louis Blau, who was very impressive and was helped me a little bit because I had to get into a couple of doors that I was trying to get into. But we did have lunch together and we talked and he talked to me a little bit. I'd forgotten all about this. Interesting, interesting you would bring it up. And he talked to me about 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he talked to me about the, because Stanley, as you well know, let nobody see the movie, not even the distributors of the studio. Nobody saw the film until he was ready to show it. And he was finally ready to show 2001 A Space Odyssey to MGM, to all the honchos at MGM. Nobody's seen a frame, or maybe they've seen some stuff, but they hadn't seen the movie. And Stanley, who, of course, had never traveled, stayed in England. So Louis was the designated uh, host of the day who brought the, brought the print to MGM and ran the film for all the big wigs. And according to what Louis said to me, I said, so how did that go? He said, well, I gave a speech. I said, oh, what did you say? He said, I got up in front of this large group, all the heads and all the money of MGM. And I said, what you are about to see is the most brilliant film ever made. And he sat down. Wow. Shortest and most effective speech ever. And I doubt anybody had a fucking word to say afterwards. Right, right, right. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, brilliant. Uh, it's kind of interesting, but that's how... I mean, Stanley was super smart to stay away from the from you know <clears throat> the suits as we mm, call them. Yep, yep. He was smart to stay in England. Um, <clears throat> he had he had really great people working for him. I I for, I'd forgotten all about Louis Blau. He was the most impressive attorney I've ever met. But uh, I remember him telling that story at lunch. Wow, and and that was that, as they say. And that was that. Right. Yeah, and the rest is you know the only other stuff I know about two thousand and one because. Because Ray Lovejoy, who I know became a great friend of mine and was the editor on 2001 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and was working with Stanley all that time, putting all this together. And it took forever and ever. And he had movieolas lined up across his, um, you know, his cutting room where he could run each shot. Boom, boom, boom. <clears throat> um, Ray said that when they cut the last reel, and I'm just quoting what was Ray told me. They were cutting the last reel. They'd been working on it for days. And it's, it's all the Star Child stuff. You, it's that whole hint, hint section. Mm -hmm. And apparently one night, and the, and the film is due to open very shortly, like in a week's time or two weeks time in Washington and New York, I believe. And Stanley looks at it. And I don't know if he, what he said, but essentially he said, it's a fucking mess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> right, and he told um, he told either one of the the assistants to go and get him a bottle of vodka, or a bottle of scotch. Right, I mean, right. he never drank, and they brought the bottle, and he sat there with um, 
you know, with Ray Lovejoy. And uh, they had a few drinks. And he said, I got to recut the whole thing. Mm. Well, apparently there was no time. And if I have the story correct, they recut the last reel on the um, on board ship on Queen Mary, I yeah. believe. Yep, yep. Um, they recut it in a stateroom all the way going across. Mm -hmm. And that last reel, according according to Ray Lovejoy, was in the labs being printed mm -hmm. as the show was beginning in New York. Mm -hmm. And they were rushing the last, very last reel. Yeah. That's, that's what it would come down to, literally a sprint yeah. to the finish line. It's amazing. <laughs> he won't fly, of course. He's got a governor on his car, that, so the car only goes 35 miles an hour. <laughs> You know, and he's spraying the place to get <laughs> flies and God knows all these stories. And uh, and he's on a boat in a in a stateroom editing right. probably one of the, one of the most difficult reels of the show. And it's just incredible. Yeah. It's just bonkers to think about. You know? but, yeah. And then Ray has got the cut and he's running to the labs to get it neg cut to get it <laughs> to get it to the goddamn premiere in time. <laughs> That's just so wild. It's wild. Totally wild. We weren't aware of how close it was. We knew he was editing on the ship, but we didn't realise that it was literally, you know, a very, very last minute thing as it was being screened. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know it was that close. <laughs> I think I know, learned a little bit about it because I used Technicolor in London. I think Technicolor New York was handling the prints. And therefore, I think they were all geared up for this rush mm -hmm. so at all hands on deck it, it was clearly right. rushed to the lab <laughs> cut quickly printed quickly and gotten to the script because i do believe and it may just be fantasy i do believe that the last reel showed up at the screenings and there's two one in washington one in new york uh -huh. i believe we had two well the show was being premiered that's insane and that's insane all that needs is like original footage of running <laughs> to the theater with like Lalo Schifrin doing Mission Impossible yeah. theme over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it happens, and it happens. And, and you know, when you think about it, because, you know, 2001 is such a complex show, particularly at, at being made in that time. I mean, so in, in, innovative. And you can see Stanley sitting there and not having the shape of the star child, that whole sequence, the way he wants it. Mm -hmm. You know, and it is kind of philosophical. It's kind of poetic. It's it's a whole bunch of stuff. Very much so. And you can see him sitting over the moviola and saying, fuck, you know, <laughs> it, it's a mess. <laughs> no. <laughs> so interesting stuff. It's just it's just wild. Like, yeah, you can't imagine anyone working like that. You know, obviously, prior to that, you know, moment when Stanley is really asserting himself. And certainly not after. Certainly nothing like that would take place nowadays. You know, it's no. got to go through, you know, 30 uh, test screenings and be pre-approved by yep. every every audience. Um, so now we got to talk about, of course, Kubrick's next film after uh, 2001, uh, Clockwork Orange, of course, right. with uh, John Alcott uh, being the DP. And yes. uh, in 72... When he released it, uh, I can imagine that you went and saw that, uh, having been won over by 2001 already. What did you think of it? I, I you know, again, I found Clockwork Orange extraordinary. Um, I, I actually knew um, 
the writer of the book. I'd met him several times. That's another story. We won't, we'll go there later, maybe. Um, <clears throat> I uh, I was particularly struck by the visuals mm -hmm. of Clockwork Orange. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I knew the book very well. Uh, I, I thought the look of the film was extraordinary. Um, I thought performances were very strong. I know that the, that the film created some problems for Stanley in England because of the violence. And I know there were some clockwork orange gangs that started picking up afterwards. Mm -hmm. and that's a very interesting story. And I know that Stanley bought the rights to prevent it. Anyway, all that kind of stuff was going on. Uh, but I liked the film. I thought it was great. And I, I did meet John very shortly after that because having seen the film and seeing the photography, a particular, a very particular kind of photography, that I wanted to meet him because I was working on a documentary at the time, but I was lined up to do Little Malcolm. And I wanted John for Little Malcolm. Mm. So that's what I reached out to him. I can't remember exactly how I reached out to him, but I, I got him. And he came to my cutting rooms because I was right at the end stage of finishing Kelly Country in the cutting room. And he came up with a bunch of showreels because he was totally a lens guy. He's all about the lenses. Mm -hmm. and, different lenses. and with Stanley, he was bringing all kinds of different lenses for the for all the movies, sometimes photo, just, fo you know, photographic lenses. I mean, standard stills lenses, which he put remounts on and change all kinds of all kinds of lens work. So. Um, I met Johnny he, in the cutting room. He showed us a lot of uh, shots from clockwork that demonstrated his 0.69 lens, this particular lens, uh, yeah. that particular lens, mm -hmm. how he achieved that look. I mean, so again, not to deviate too much on it, Johnny was all about available light. Mm, What's right. the available light? Right, and right. I, think, I think he taught Stanley a lot about that. So available light, where's, what's the light source and all the rest of it. So if it's the street um, and we're going to light the street, then it's the street lamps and the shop windows that's lighting the street. Mm -hmm. And what he would do with Lou Bogue, his, his electrician, is he had these very special bulbs, which I believe he had made in France. And he would go up and change, simply change the lights in all the street lights, change the lights in the shop, which would give him much more output, mm. more, more, you know, more voltage. Right. Essentially, he would light the streets with all the existing lights. There was hardly ever he put a brood in or another light. He might accent something, but that's how he that's how he would light it. Mm. And that's kind of what I was looking for. I was looking for that kind of natural light. Um, I knew I was going to shoot the film up in up around um, uh, around Huddersfield. We weren't in Huddersfield. We were in another town uh, for Little Malcolm. But I wanted that natural light, and I wanted a, a different kind of look. But Clockwork Orange actually was where I was at. So that's that's how it started with John and I. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Now, in between uh, you seeing 2001 and A Clockwork Orange, of course, we should point out, is when you became a director for the first time. Um, your first film being A Test of Violence, which was, is a 14-minute uh, short documentary. It was BAFTA-nominated uh, about the Spanish artist uh, Juan Hanoves. What led you to that subject, and how did you end up making the leap from that to your next film, uh, Kelly Country, which came out just after Clockwork? Right. Well, in, in short, if I couldn't have been a film director, I would have loved to have been a painter, but I can't paint for shit. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 stuck, I stuck with the directing, which I, I actually could do. Right. And, um, but... Putting that aside, I, 
I had always, always very been interested in, in painting, painters, and canvases. And I've often used painters and canvases as an example or as a kind of image for a film I'm working on. Mm-hmm. So I've, before I would go to, say, photographs, I'd usually go to painters as kind of research to see if I could find a painter that was the painter that represented kind of conceptually what the movie was. Yeah. So I had uh, <clears throat> spent a lot of time in galleries. And I saw this particular painter, Hanoves. Mm. I saw his work uh, at the Marlborough Fine Art Gallery in London. And he's a graphic painter, f- sensational painter, Spanish. Um, and he was painting Vietnam, but from the air with thousands of people running across airstrips and uh, a lot of political kind of paintings uh, taking place not only in, in, in Spain, but in you know other Latin American countries. Very much a graphic political painter but mm. stunning work yeah so i was drawn to it and i had access to um to universal studios there there was a the head of studio was was there jay Cantor was his name he was the last american head of a studio in england who could actually give you a green light and say yeah we'll make that and at that time he was making a lot of films with david warner Morgan, a suitable case for treatment. He's oh, yeah, Gopher's yeah. gun. Yeah. These are all films that were under the, the banner of Jay Cantor. And um, I brought in this, all this artwork into his office, mechanical things that he could move because I wanted to animate the paintings and re and as it were, reenact the paintings. And he spent half an hour with me. He said, How much money do you need? I said, you know, I think we can do it for 14,000 14, pounds. He said, I got it. Go, go make it. Mm. Then and then they had short movies being shown with a with, with a feature. They were still a short oh, yeah. subject in those yeah. days. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But this was for. So that's how I made uh Test of Violence. Um it worked out really well. It's, it's actually it's actually 18 minutes long, but it doesn't matter. But it it did unbelievably well. It uh it won the gold medal in Moscow. It won the it won the Gandhi Peace Award. It won a BAFTA award. It won uh, evening news. I mean, it won about eight or nine really quite important awards. Mm. I was completely surprised as so, a first time director. That was my that was my first shot. Yeah, totally. You got to you know knock you off your feet a bit to have those kind of accolades coming at you for your first effort. It was it was very surprising. I thought, well, this is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, and it's, a, it's a really wonderful film as well, uh, the short film. Yeah. And uh, for our listeners, if they want to see the short film that we're currently uh, talking about, it is on the Criterion release of Overlord. Of Overlord, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's included yeah. on there. And it's included it's on beautiful, there. Beautiful, beautiful print too, the transfer. Yeah. So, um, then, so art leads to art. And so because it was the Marlborough Fine Art Gallery who represented Hanoves, um, they then said, well, would you like to do some more? And the next person in the in the offering, actually a painter I admired because I'd seen a wonderful exhibition of his, was Sidney Nolan, who's probably the most important Australian painter uh, internationally. And Sid wanted a, a documentary about his, not so much about him, but what he liked about Test of Violence, it was about the work, not the painter, mm. and the painter through his work, as it were. Mm. And... Um, they approached me, and so bingo, I got the BBC behind us for Omnibus, and we went to Australia. I traveled 56,000 miles just in Australia with Sydney. There was no script. I had all his art books, mm. and he just took me to every location he'd ever fucking painted. <laughs> and, and I just started putting a show together 
really kind of just by the travel, you know, what I learned as I went along, um, had a very small crew, had shot, I don't know, thousands of feet of film, brought it all back to England, and we started to cut together this, this kind of story. It's a little bit abstract. And I had met Orson Welles while working on a film called I'll Never Forget, forget what his, What's His Name. Yeah. Um, not a particularly great film. Michael Winner, director. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I had a part called Lewis Force, and I was a film director in the movie. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and I spent a lot of time with Orson on the set. And he used to get me in trouble because he said, come on, I'll take you to lunch. And he'd take me to the Savoy for lunch. And his lunch was a five-course lunch with brandy. Mm-hmm. And he'd come back to the set 45 minutes late with crumbs coming down his <laughs> like this. <laughs> so Michael got pissed off with me, but I did make a great relationship with Orson. So I called. He was in London. And I called his office. And I said, I've got this documentary about Sid Nolan. He said, I know who Sid Nolan is. And I said, I, I'm trying to put it all together with stories. And tell because Nolan is a kind of a graph. It's kind of a he's he's a narrative painter, and I need somebody to bind it all together with with um with a voiceover and tell the stories. And he came along. It cost a thousand dollars per night and two bottles of claret. That was, <laughs> of course, that it was, did. <laughs> the claret's got to be in Orson's writer, of course. And, and he did a fabulous job. I've never known a, a reader, an actor, to literally sit down. First time, take the paper and read it flawlessly, mm-hmm. just like that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And Kelly Country really led me to Little Malcolm. So I was, Little Malcolm was coming into my life as I was finishing Kelly Country. Okay. Right. So in the, in 74, you made Little Malcolm and his struggle against the eunuchs. Yes. Um, <laughs> great title. <laughs> Originally came from a play in the mid-60s, I believe. And it went on to win the Silver Berlin Bear Award at the Berlin International Film Festival in 74. I wonder what's going on down there. Chucking me out, the bastard. Culmination of five years arsing around. Surprised they let me go on so long. I'll make more trouble away from that place than I ever did inside it. And let's form ourselves into a political party. That's a magnificent opportunity to do all the things we've always talked about. And our ultimate aim will be to realize all our dreams, take a proper place in the scheme of things, and achieve absolute power. I'll hunt you down to the ends of the earth, and fall off our track, and make you wish you've never been born! Dynamic erection is Malcolm Skornike! Surrounded by these eunuchs, I realize that we, the oppressed, must take things into our own hands, rally our forces, and seize the initiative! Get out of the way, you silly... Oh, so we're just silly kids, are we? Not capable of doing anything! We're not men, she says. She is a woman. She's quivering. She's waiting for their hands on her warm, soft body. Punished! 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 
another fantastic effort for a young guy. It must have been like, you know, what is happening? Happening? I'm playing with the house money now. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a surprise. And of course, the film is such an offbeat film. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It's a black comedy. Mm-hmm. It, it started it started as a very kind of a interesting play at the Royal Court. Johnny Hurt had perfected it and made it happen. It was a David Hallowell script. David Hallowell was kind of an interesting writer. In fact, it's a beautifully written book, but it is all black comedy. And um uh and George Harrison had seen the stage play, knew knew John, thought Johnny Hurt was phenomenal in it, and said, I want to make the picture. I haven't as a Beatle, I haven't had my gig yet. Every, all the other Beatles had had the gig, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John had done Imagine, um uh Paul had done Magical Mystery Tour, and Ringo had done with uh, uh the Magic Nelson. Christian. Yeah, Nielsen with, with Harry Nielsen, Nielsen yeah. Harry Nielsen. So the other Beatles, all who I got to know very well, had all done a gig, but the only person who hadn't done a gig was George. Right. And George says, I'm going to make Little Malcolm and his struggle against the eunuchs. And if, if you think about it, George always had this offbeat humor when you see. Oh, very did, much so. You know, so it really kind of fit into his thing. I mean, he ended up funding the Monty Python films. He created handmade films to absolutely just give them he, a blank check. I think he mortgaged his castle. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No. Yeah. So I had, uh, so, you know, that's how that all started. Um, And he wanted to make it. And I met George. uh, I actually met George for the first time. He'd seen Test of Violence, which he really liked at home or somewhere. Somebody showed it to him. But I had just got, I almost like 2001, my editor and I were rushing a brand new print out of Technicolor of Kelly Country to show it to George and some of his guys that came. And they'd been waiting at the theater a good hour because my print was still wet and I was rushing it down to run Kelly Country for them. So he saw Kelly Country and we started a relationship on the back of Kelly Country. He uh, he said, you know, I'm not so sure I care about those guys trying to get across that fucking desert. But, you know, it's a very beautiful film. But uh, let's let's move on. You know, so. Right, right. <laughs> that was, and he was great. He was wonderful. Um and we, I got to know him very well, and we then proceeded to make uh, Little Malcolm. Um, so we always talk about the the nexus between like Kubrick, Python, and the Beatles, and here it is again. And now you come into the picture because uh, your production team, you know, in, included you got John Alcott, you know, from two thousand one, Doug Milsom from uh, Clockwork Orange. Barry Lyndon, The Shining from Metal Jacket. I mean, his last films. Mike Malloy uh, yep. on camera from Clockwork and Barry Lyndon. Uh, Graham, uh, how did I pronounce his name? Uh, Skiaf? Skaif? Skaif. Uh, Graham Skaif. Uh, yeah. Graham Skaif, who I knew, yeah. You, you had Kubrick's uh, Gaffer for Clockwork, yep. Barry Lyndon and The Shining, uh, Lou Bogue, Ray Lovejoy, of course, famously yep. edited 2001. Dr. Strangelove as well prior to that and The Shining. And you even had his prop master, Terry Wells. Yes, I did. I from did. Barry Lyndon, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut. It's just extraordinary. So yeah, how did all that fall into place, man? And it, it kind of like putting a, a puzzle together is probably the best way in what I do remember. Uh, I knew Mike Malloy because his wife was my was my kind of production gal. Mm-hmm. And she was with me during the making of... Kelly country. 
Sandy Malloy was his wife at the time, and she was working for my for my group for my company. So I knew who I, I knew her, I knew Mike already. I'd met Lou Borg, um, Borg at some point with Johnny, but all of these people really were the product of of John bringing them to me, saying, "Who do you want for this? I want you to meet this person. You know, how about so." Essentially, Johnny introduced me to most of these people uh, that I hadn't met. And because he just come with them off clockwork, I said, how can we better it? And it yeah. made John comfortable. Yeah. You know, they were all great. They're all great technicians, all of them. I can re I remember them vividly. Um, <clears throat> and so that's how it all that's how we gathered, you know? Yeah, makes so much sense. And obviously you was yeah. you were you were very impressed with the clockwork orange, the results of a clockwork orange. So yeah, it was a yes, wasn't it? Yeah. It had to be, yeah. I mean, you could see from the work that John did on clockwork and, and the model work that he did on 2001 that he clearly was going to be or was even then one of the top 10 or 12, you know, cinematographers mm. working out of Europe. There's no question he was. I mean, you can count the classic ones in two hands. And Johnny certainly became one of those main mm. photographers. There's no mm -hmm. question. But you could see it in his intention, the way he worked the way he helped. I mean, he really mentored. In a sense, he mentored me mm -hmm. for a couple of years. So him coming on to um, Little Malcolm, my first feature film, what uh, gave me great confidence. Gave me yeah, great confidence. Sure. You know, sure. and he and he was he and his team were a big help. Well, you got to yeah. be mentored by him, you know, in a sense, three times. And he worked three times with Kubrick. That puts you in yeah. pretty rarefied air, I'd say. Yeah. It's it's funny how that all worked out. I never thought about it too much, but that's what it was. Amazing. And you got the music to the film composed by Stanley Myers, who went on, of course, I mean, when he got his name out there proper was, of course, for The Deer Hunter, um, nice. which was a highly lauded film, as we all know. Yeah, an, yeah. In, an extraordinary film. Yeah. How did you find him? And did that collaboration work well between you two? I, it was fine. He's, he was a little bit, um, I, I like Stanley a lot. Um, Georgia approved him finally. The, the, the slight, the slight um, bugaboo for me was I actually wanted George to do the music for the film, mm. and I and I bothered him endlessly. Why wouldn't it. you? Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think I probably made myself a bit of a thorn because I was so wanting him to do it and talk to him about what kind of music and what he thought, but he had so much else going on just at that point in time. He was recording a lot of stuff, and he just. I don't know. Either it was it was too busy, or he just or he felt maybe it wasn't his forte. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so Stanley is where we went, and that was okay. Stanley likes to overdub everything. Everything was overdubbed, so it makes the music session a little bit fragmented and not so much fun as if you go into a studio mm -hmm. and you've got an orchestra and you can hear it all. So uh, my relationship was a little bit strung out because I had to wait to hear the music because of what we spent all day just recording the the violin, right? Mm -hmm. and right, sure. Day, you know, and you sit there and you listen to us. You know, I want to hear this fucking score, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and then you bring. So it was a little bit like that, but I thought he did a very nice job. The other thing that's interesting is that I I had a, a scene with a um, there's a scene with a a heavy rock band or a a band in a club. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And and I auditioned a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of bands from up north, and we found this group called Splinter who I really liked. Hmm. And so there is a scene, there's a club scene, and we have Splinter, and they sing a song, which we use in the movie. And George liked it so much that he later produced them. He 
He oh. signed them up and he produced several. Oh, wow. Movies. I don't think I knew yeah. that. And it's called, their group is called Splinter. Huh. And I liked, I liked that part of the music better because I thought it was indigenous to the country, you know, where we were, yeah. you know, um, the whole, that whole kind of Lowry landscape of the North and that right. shingled windows. Right, it, right. It, it was really that which John captured so well. And um, and so there we were. You so, know? and you're working with John Alcott. Uh, you'd worked with him already at the time Barry Lyndon comes out in 75, and you talked about him making best use of all available light, natural light. Um, and of course, you know, Kubrick shot the whole film with those Zeiss lenses, the Carl Zeiss lenses. And you'd already worked with Alcott, you know, got some tutelage you know very much so from him but i gotta ask what you thought of uh barry linden when you saw it well i think barry linden is an extraordinary looking film i know a fair amount about it because i spent an awful lot of time with john mm. and john would tell me some funny stories he would say so stanley came up to me and said you know uh how, how, johnny how are we gonna light this movie yeah, mm -hmm. and and john said well you know stanley they didn't have electric lights then <laughs> John would do right, it just right, like that. Right. John was very dry. Right. I mean, he was very, very dry. Right. They didn't. And Stanley said, "Yeah, I, I get that." And so Johnny said, "So I got to light the film with candlelight." He said, "I guess Stanley said, is that possible?" He said, "Yeah, I know how to make it possible." So, what you probably already know is that John had candles made in Germany with three wicks. Mm -hmm. So it's three. So it's three candlelight. And he had these huge candelabras made, which he put the candles. He had a whole team of people who would light candles. Mm -hmm. And he had huge, I, I, was, I saw the set. Wow. And these candelabras would be, would be arranged around a scene. And then all he would do is with reflectors, is he would reflect the candlelight. Right. Into the scene. It's extraordinary. It's fucking incredible. Right, right. And if, and if there was an open window in the, in the set, like if it was a bathroom, there's a lovely bathroom scene. So got, he has natural light coming in through the window. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the lighting, well, he got an Oscar. He deserved it. The lighting is incredible. Yeah. It's an incredible. You know, I think the beauty of the film is better than the movie. Um, and that might be being a little bit unfair. I like the movie a lot. I thought of it. I, I heard another story, which may be part of, if there's a weakness in the movie, it might be this. I had heard, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard that Stanley um, wanted to get rid of who was the main actor in it? Um, Ryan O'Neill. Ryan Ryan O'Neill. I'd heard that he wanted to get rid of Ryan. That about <clears throat> so many weeks into the shoot, he was not happy. I just, you know, this this is not me talking. It's just what I'd heard, and that he he contractually couldn't do it, and the studio wouldn't let him get out of it. So he was stuck with Ryan, and maybe it dampened dampened his. Um, his feeling about the about the performance and the kind of, you know, the guts of the movie, mm. and therefore he really focused with Johnny on the visual beauty of the story. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just yeah. something I heard, and I know they had a lot of very fancy lenses. They had a lens from NASA. Johnny got a lens from NASA for that shoot. Yeah, that's the, the Carl Zeiss lenses. That's the yeah. Zeiss exactly. made Zeiss made yeah. ten of them. He sold six to, if I'm not mistaken, he sold six to NASA. Uh, kept one for himself, and Kubrick bought the other three. Right, of course, right. of course, he did. <laughs> yeah. So those are the those really long, slow zoom ins, and mm -hmm. sometimes those low pullouts. That'll be what that's all about. So I, I'm just speculating that maybe 
Stanley, performance-wise, in, in terms of performance, lost a little heart that he wasn't going to get the character and the performance that he really wanted, um, if that's the true story, mm. and kind of just reshuffled and made the film the beautiful photograph oil painting that it is yeah 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 that it is and it and it truly is and it's like and it's, it's like the ultimate slow burn you know that term that people apply to certain films the way they just do just that like they slowly burn until you know it ends that yeah. I, that's when i finally let barry linden in when i was in college i had seen it prior to that but I, I think in my younger man's mind, I was judging it against The Shining, of course, and uh, right. Full Metal Jacket, Strange Love, 2001. And yeah, it's it's if, if I try to explain to someone now why they should see it, if they consider themselves a film buff, I'm like, well, it's the ultimate slow burn. And it does seem to work, at least help pique people's interest enough to check it out. Yes. I think it's a very, a very good way to talk about it, for sure. Um and I, I'm going to look at it again. I haven't seen it for quite a few years, but I, I, I'll look at it again. It's been restored, I think. Yeah, Criterion's transfer is like, yeah. it's just yeah. beyond gorgeous. It's it's yeah. luscious. And they managed to do something with the monaural soundtrack. So like the galloping of hooves on cobblestone actually go left to right. And yet it's not a stereophonic transfer. I don't quite know. I should because I'm an audio nerd, but it's yeah. like, it's really worth picking up the Criterion Blu-ray if you can. Well, it's interesting you say that because... Overlord is on Criterion, mm -hmm. and they are they are meticulous with this. They came out to L.A. Best. I was in L.A. I I worked for two weeks in the studio remastering Overlord. It's a mono it's a mono track as well, but mm -hmm. um, it was actually a very good dub. I did it at Twickenham Film Studios, and it's an extremely good mono dub. But the the uh, the transfers we did and uh, the restoration we did for Overlord with Criterion was absolutely first class. First class, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so speaking of Overlord, you know, we're going to yeah. ask you about that. You co-wrote and directed it. It's a World War II flick about the buildup to the D-Day landings uh, some 30 years prior. Now, in order to tell the story of one young man's journey preparing for Operation Overlord, you utilized footage of the real events that were given to you by the Imperial War Museum, if I'm not mistaken. And then you integrated that archive footage into the newly filmed black and white footage you shot. Uh, in the early 70s. Have you seen any action? Not really. What do you mean, not really? Well, I've been on training, and that was tough. Come on, you haven't finished yet! <laughs> and hypnotic film to be made about the war and what it was like to have to fight it. You know what that means, don't you? No. It means we'll be the first ashore when they do put on that invasion, that's what. I suppose someone's got to go first. It is necessary to burn all personal letters and papers or wrap them in the paper being issued to be sent home. Starring Brian Sterner, David Harris, Nicholas Ball, and introducing Julie Neeson as the girl. Get down there! Get down! 
So can you just tell our listeners firstly about how the story that you portrayed, a bit about the story that you portrayed in Overlord and then how you came to the project and its development? Sure. So because of my my documentary work with painter, painters and paintings, I was approached by the Imperial War Museum. They wanted me to make a quite a large documentary about what was what was being sewn at the Royal School of Needlework at that very moment, a documentary about the making and presentation of what has become the Overlord Embroidery. And I think it's now on view in England somewhere, down on the shore somewhere, it's, it's in some place in England. Mm. It's become very famous. And what the Imperial War Museum wanted to do, they wanted to do a kind of modern day, a modern day replica of the bio tapestry uh, in France, but this mm. would be all about Overlord. Right, yeah. And uh, so they hired me to come, come in and start to prepare a documentary about the making of it. I met the person who was doing all the cartoons. I went and I actually did some a lot of shooting at the Rose School of Needlework to get a feel of how to build the documentary. Mm -hmm. And then it occurred to me, um, and there was no rush on this because it was a slow process, as you can imagine, it was going to be made. It was going to take them three years to make it, uh, to, to build, you know, to actually sew the, the sure. embroidery. Sure. I decided I should go to the Imperial War Museum. And because it was Overlord and all about D-Day, I thought I should go and look and see what footage was available, archive footage about D-Day in and around D-Day. So you came and, to the footage first before writing the script. So there was no, and uh, you mean for Overlord? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I, yes. I was, because I wasn't even thinking about Overlord, my movie Overlord. I was thinking about intercutting live action mm -hmm. archive footage with the with the bio with mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. embroidery so i'm in there for many many days looking at archive footage i was met by the the uh the head of the archive department i learned very quickly how much footage they actually have there on world war ii i was she said how much would you like to see i said well i'll just look at the whole collection hmm. and she said would you <laughs> i said yeah i'm i'm here i'll just look it all and she said, well, Mr. Cooper, if you're to do that, and uh, would you come every 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 day of the week? I'll come every day. So what time would you like to rise? Like nine, nine. I'll work from nine to four or five. She said, you know, if you did that every week, you would just about get through the collection in nine years. I felt so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> um, so we focused on D-Day. We focused on Overlord. Right. I looked at thousands and thousands of feet about D-Day. A lot of footage, which is still at that time being was called classified mm -hmm. because the museum were part of it. So they really opened the museum to me. And and long oh, story man. short, while I'm viewing the archive and I'm thinking about Overlord and I've gotten my, to know my way around the museum, I know what they have there. I begin to think, fuck, there's a much better movie here. Mm -hmm. Embroidery. There's a real movie here that hasn't been made. Mm. The, ar the archive footage is fantastic. So I changed gears and got permission from the producers I was working with uh, on the embroidery and permission uh, from the curator of the museum to begin work on a feature film dealing strictly with Overlord that utilizes archive footage and a lot of archive footage, which has never been seen. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I moved away from the embroidery I spent over 3,000 hours of viewing in a little cell 
with 25 reels of nitrate day after day after day making my notes um, to get an idea of how I could how I could spin a story. And then I got involved and I got I got um, my co-writer, Chris Hudson, to go into the archive into the um, you know into documents. Yeah. And we started to research all the unpublished diaries of ordinary soldiers, not officers, or ordinary soldiers who had actually landed, you know, mm-hmm. at Omaha Oster, Beach, right. First, first on the beach, right. and their letters and all their stories. And so what I began to develop, and it took a long time, I worked on it on and off. I had a, I had a break in the middle of it. I'd actually started a little bit of the research before I actually before I started Little Malcolm, but that's not important. Oh. Um, but we um we started to put together a kind of composite of Tom. Mm. But he was based on a bunch of other other people, other right, other right, other, sure. other stories. And that's how we kind of developed the, the screenplay. Mm. So I had all this archive in my cutting room. I made notes of everything. I knew it was there. And I, of course, we designed the art, the live action story a little bit to do with what we had learned about the archive. So I knew what archive I could fill in with to tell the story. So essentially, Overlord is a very poetic, very abstract movie, which is which and the bigger story is the archive. Right. Yeah. And I didn't. Take a thousand ships across the sea. I didn't do that. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. That's all archive. Well, what you so end up with, or not end up with, but you know, we're able to pastiche together, is yes. you know quite poetic to say the least. It's yes. presentation, much more so rather than like a straightforward narrative. Um, and you've explained pretty beautifully, like how you came to that approach. We're going to ask about John Alcott again because. He filmed all the new sequences you right. wanted for Overlord, and you'd worked with him on three films, as we already mentioned. Right. Uh, John films all the black and white footage uh, that right. you shot in 75. Was he involved with the archive footage as well, or no. not his task? Yes, yes and no. Not not in terms of what we chose and what we edited, but he wanted um, – it's a very interesting question, and here's where the thing kind of opens up. We wanted, I'd made up my mind that to make this film successful, it had to be seamless because I've seen so much archive footage, just like you all have seen archives footage cut mm-hmm. into, into uh, feature films and it jumps out at you. The fourth wall is broken right, immediately. Right, right, right. Yeah, of course. Scra- this scratchy shit comes out and yeah. you say, oh my God, it's archive. Yeah. So I'm talking to John. I said, we've got to find a way to make it seamless. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, I, I'm not trying to say that I shot it, but I don't want the audience to be chucked out of the, out of the story. Right. Of course, and I think that would be part of the magic of the movie as well. So several things happened that were, were absolutely key to this. One thing, first of all, is that Johnny came with me and said, "I want you to show me the very best of the archive, interior day and night, exterior day and night. Get me some shots and show me the best of the archive that you've got." As an example, right. I said, "No, no worries. I put some reels together." I went to the curator. Of the of the museum because I know that all the archive is in is nitrate. It's not acetate. Mm-hmm. It's all on nitrate film, and mm-hmm. I know they don't let anybody use the nitrate. So if I want an archive shot, I'm going to take a fine grain or a dupe negative that was probably made in 1940 or 1950. Mm-hmm. It's all scratchy and crappy. So I went to the curator, Noble Franklin, who became a friend and was the real he was the real motor behind this movie. Incredible. It, it just kind of came together. He said, what do you need? I said, I need to use the master negatives. 
He says, it's never been done. I said, I know it's never been done. I need the nitrate negatives. I need to make my own negative from your master. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I don't want to use anything that's already been pre-made. Would you give me access to the original footage? Brilliant, said, brilliant move. He said, you got it. You got it. And there was only one lab in North, in North London on, the, on, the, on the, the Circle Road called Brent's. It would still deal in the labs with um, nitrate. With nitrate. nitrate, nitrate right. right. So I got them to print me several shots that I'd picked out to print me from the master negative what they could. And the pictures were unbelievable. Yeah. The yeah. gray tones, the blacks, mm-hmm. the, the grain in the film. Mm-hmm. So that's what I showed to John. And he said, well, that's fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. And he said, so I said, so how do we match it? And he said, well, we're going to use old lenses. I said, you're absolutely right. Right. So we spent, Brilliant. I don't know how many weeks right. or months scouring Europe. And Johnny found two 1936-1938 Goitsch and Schneider lenses, uncoated, old <laughs> lenses. We brought them all back to England. We remounted them. So we shot the whole film on old German lenses Jesus. that had been uncoated. Just like, it's a masterstroke. Yeah. It really, and then... Kodak gave us the oldest black and white stock that they had in their vaults. Wow. And that's, and then I incorporated, Johnny and I worked on this very carefully. I incorporated a kind of, he incorporated a lighting style and I used a camera style that was very reminiscent of the forties. Mm-hmm. Shot it very simply, pretty flat right, on. If right, you right, carefully. right. Nothing yeah. fancy. Really. I really wanted to hide, behind. I didn't want to be present. Mm. I wanted to be transparent. And so we shot it that way. And we shot the entire live action in 10 days. Jesus. Wow. So mm. the breakdown of the film is about 27%. It doesn't look this way, but 27% of the film is archive. The rest is live action. And I delivered the film with a poster for Berlin, um, a poster and a show print, all for 100,000 pounds. <laughs> Total budget. Unbelievable. And having put all of that effort into everything you just described as well. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary. And of course, and the other little bump or the other little benefit from the Imperial War Museum is they they introduced the Ministry of Defense to us. So all those landing craft, that was a freebie. Mm-hmm. All those mm-hmm. Well, I went <laughs> I went down into the basement of of the museum because it's not we I think we have some costumes down there. I went down to the basement. I there were rows and rows of 1940 army costumes. There oh were rows, rows of guns. Guns. Oh. The what was great about the whole show is the guys at the museum who did all the um, events mm. for the museum. Mm-hmm. They they were my 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 production design company. They were my prop people. <laughs> Everything came from the museum. Everything just fell into place. Sounds yeah. like. We do all kinds of. Uh, we flew the last flying um, Lancaster bomber. This from the city of Lincoln. We flew it over the, you know, the Bristol coast. Mm-hmm. I meant to ask yeah. you about about that shot. Yeah. I was I wanted to ask, was that archive or did you shoot that? Because somehow I felt it was newly shot, but I thought it must be archive. But there you go, it was yeah. newly shot. We shot it. Yeah, they flew it for us. It was a fantastic day. We flew it. We and we were using Prince Charles's uh, helicopter squadron for to shoot from. Yeah, yeah. So, so all that stuff. What's really remarkable, Stephen is that it was all given to us for free. The mm. training ground, the barracks, the, the landing craft, the guys in the landing craft were young kids training to go to uh, Belfast. 
every everything they gave us, to, or to put it another way, if I had to kind of calculate what the cost would have been to pay for all the things that we got for free, right? I have no, I have no idea what the cost would have right. been. Right, incalculable. Yeah, I, exactly. But you know something else? The fact that it all came that way somehow infected in a positive way mm-hmm. made the film more realistic. I mean, I had people helping me, you know, in terms of behavior in the landing crowd. I had professional guys there. Everywhere I turned around, I had a pro helping me with this and that, whatever Right, sure, sure. Everything was, everything was perfect. The props were perfect. The, the uniforms were perfect. Mm-hmm. It, and it all added to the makeup of Overlord and what it is. Mm. It's and extraordinary. That, it is extraordinary. And Fantastic it's, film. Do, and it is. Oh, my gosh, to say the least. And all due to, you know, the resourcefulness of a, a young director with the right <laughs> ideas and ambition. And that's yeah. what it comes yeah. down to, right? It's a simple and then having Exactly. And then having the expertise, people, the real people in the archives, mm-hmm. me, having Johnny Alcott there who said, this is how we can fix this. You know, I remember when I showed him the first clips that I got directly from the labs, he was, he said, it, it's great. And he never shot a black and white film. That's the only black and white film he shot. Overlord, the moving story of a young soldier at one of the turning points in world history. So I hate to come out of uh, your description of such a brilliant aspect of your work with such a question that I'm now about to ask with my tongue planted firmly in cheek. But in Overlord, there is an archive shot of a landing craft with the number 237. Of course, to Kubrick fans, this is a very significant number. We're just lobbing the question out there for silliness's sake. Do you think Stanley may have seen Overlord while he was planning The Shining? <laughs> Well, I happen to know he did. Really? All right, then. There and, you have it. And that's a little bit of the story that um, I was telling you when we first talked, Stephen. Yeah. So, so after I made Overlord, and I think, well, I well, I had was making it and finishing it, Stanley was actually in preparation for The Shining. I think I've got that right. In terms yeah. Of, yes. In terms yep. Of, okay. Yeah. So I had not personally met Stanley at this point in time. The story is that I got a call from EMI, who was going to distribute Overlord for us, which was a, a complete mistake because all they did is put it in Academy 1 and Academy 2, which okay. I could have done myself. Yeah, It doesn't matter. But EMI wanted the film and were going to take care of it internationally, and they made a big page pitch to the EMI, I mean, to, uh, to the Imperial War Museum, um, and they were 
pleased that such a big company was going to take Little Overlord. It was the yeah. big mistake we ever made. Mm. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. I get a call from, and they did They did do a great press book. I got it. We'd already won the Silver Bear in Berlin, and we'd won award, another award, I think, in Atlanta as well. I think. We met, made several, got a couple of awards. It doesn't matter. I get a call from EMI saying, we wanted to you to know that Stanley Kubrick has just taken uh, the show print, one of your show prints from uh, from us. We've We've taken it to him because he wanted to see the film. I said, great. Hmm. Why are you calling? He said, well, we wanted you to know. I said, well, that's great. Let me know when it comes back. You know? <laughs> um, it's, gone. it's gone for a couple of weeks. Um, and the print comes back. Uh, they call me, say it's come back. I said, did Stanley uh, say anything about them? No, he, they just, uh, his, his runner, he, he brought the film back. I said, great. So about that time, John Olcott says, why don't you come out to Elstree and have lunch? I said, great, John, I'd love to come out and see you. I later learned that this was set up and Johnny was the, was Cupid, right? Mm -hmm. I go, I have this great lunch with Johnny and we're actually talking at that point about the disappearance because that's going to be my next show. Right, yeah. And um, we're talking and he said, would you mind, I've got to stop by and pick something up at Stanley's office. It'll only take a second. Do you mind coming with me? I said, no, fuck it, I'll come, let's go. (laughs) So we go up. And as we go up, and he's upstairs at Elstree and in this funky little play in the office. And as I go into the hallway, there's Stanley standing in the corridor waiting. Mm. I realized that Stanley wanted to meet me and asked John to bring him up. And so to do it and make it look like it wasn't right, right, right. They made a lunch and all the rest. Yeah. So Stanley said, I'm glad to chase you. I'm so glad to meet you. How are you? He couldn't have been nice. He was great. He says, come on in. I'd like to talk to you. I'm in his office for an hour and a half. And all we talk about is how I made over there. Mm-hmm. How did you do this? How mm-hmm. did you do that? Mm-hmm. What about the negatives? Mm-hmm. What about what about the lenses? And he wanted a complete breakdown right. of the entire thing because he was fascinated. And when you think a little bit about Stanley, you think about films um, like how how I uh, Dr. Strangelove. Right. Yeah. And you if you remember how he shot the action scenes that he all shot it from low ground, almost like World War One footage. Mm-hmm. I began this. I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I began to realize that he had a fascination for the archive, and he used the archive as research. And he oftentimes would try to copy it when he was doing action stuff. Ah, yeah. And he certainly did in Doctor Strange Love. And but he wanted. I gave him a complete breakdown of everything. He wanted to use any special effects. I think I, we did one special effects, which is on the eye, the, the thing in the eye. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we talked the whole movie through for one hour and a half. That's all it was about. Wow. And at the end, and I think I told you this when I was talking to you, Stephen, and uh, when it was all over. And I was delighted. It was great to talk to him. And he had other anecdotes that he was throwing into the conversation. But the, the thing that I remember the most is that at the end of the meeting, he turned to me. And he could be a little bit spiky. And he said, well, you know, Stu. There's just one thing about Overlord that bothers me. And I thought, oh, fuck, here it comes. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, he looked at me and he said, it's one hour and a half too short. Amazing. Amazing. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. That was it. Wow. And then that was it, you know, and, um, and we had, I met met him. Yeah. It was, I was very impressed. Yeah. And John was happy. And John was happy. John sat there and all the rest of it, but he really liked Overlord. 
And I know that much, much later when he was doing Full Metal Jacket, a lot of press have put together that there's scenes in Overlord, the training scenes, which they've suggested that Stanley was copying or using for Full Metal Jacket. I've never tried to analyze it, but I've read it in maybe two or three different articles and magazines. Right. Who knows? But well, yeah, I mean, in Overlord, you've got those scenes in the uh, in the bunk rooms where the beds are and and the the sergeant major, very reminiscent. Yeah. Full Metal Jacket is very reminiscent of those scenes that you shot in right. Overlord. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm. Now, while while he's prepping, you know. The Shining in, in and around 77, you're working on your sixth directorial effort, The Disappearance, which we touched on. But I want to add, of course, that, you know, you've had John Alcott uh, as your DP, and then you've got Donald Sutherland, David Warner, who you were in acting school with, John Hurt, David Hemmings, like an incredible cast, Virginia McKenna, Christopher Plummer. And uh, you did work, of course, with Sutherland on Dirty Dozen, like a decade right. prior um, you brought back your little Malcolm stars, John Hurt, David Warner. Um, and now it's, you know, 1979. Is that that's when you met Kubrick uh, at Elstree while he was filming The Shining? So. So, yeah. So I'm prepared and the disappearance because it's what, a really cool convergence to have all that. Finally, it is, you know, apex at this point in time. And what was interesting about the disappearance connecting to The Shining is the disappearance didn't happen as quickly as we thought it would. There were mm -hmm. a lot of financial problems and uh, it took us a long time to actually get it together. Um, so the, a lot of time went by on and off. I would go and see Johnny, right? Because I had things to talk about. So and he was, he was on the set usually um, of the shining. So I would go visit him there and I see Stanley there. I remember one day arriving and they were shooting and uh, um, the, all the actors were there. Um, and Stanley was in the back little corner and he's on the typewriter. He's typing away like crazy. I said, Johnny, what's he doing? He said, well, he's trying to make the scene right. He's typing the scene that we're actually trying to shoot, you know, so he's busy typing and all the rest. So I visited John and Stanley was always extremely kind to me. I didn't never and bothered them. Um, I just kind of loitered and, uh, and watched the shooting for a while. Mm -hmm. And it was great. Uh, got a chance to watch Jack Nicholson work for a little while, mm -hmm. which was great. Johnny told me a funny story about um, about Jack and Stanley because Stanley, of course, and I know you already know this, would take him 90, 90 takes, a hundred takes, and mm -hmm. drive and drive absolutely fucking crazy. <laughs> um, but apparently, one little story from John was that Jack apparently can sleep anywhere in between takes. He could go to the corner and sleep. He could go to a chair and sleep. He could lie down on the floor and just go to sleep. And apparently, one day he was sleeping in the corner. And Stanley woke him up because Stanley had brought his mother and father on the set to meet Jack. Yeah. And they woke Jack up. Jack stood up and Stanley <laughs> said, Jack, I want you to meet my mom and dad, you know, my mother and father. And Jack looked at both of them and said, so you're the culprit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Love it. So, Love yeah. It. So, can you remember what scenes were being shot when you were on set? Can you remember? I do. They were working. I do. I. They were working in the refrigerator. Oh yeah, you know, a bunch of the larder. The yeah, kitchen. yeah. They yeah. were in the kitchen in that frozen freezer. That's where yeah. they were. Right. Yeah. On that on that particular day that I was there. Mm. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So um, now Stephen and I are of course huge fans of films from sixties and seventies. Seventies yeah. being Stephen's favorite decade, of course. Me too. And, Me too. You know. Yeah. Can't argue it. No. Um, 
it's 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 just a very satisfying period in cinema history, especially if you have to go by decade. But of course, you know, you have continued to work constantly through the 90s up to the present day. Do you have any standout moments uh, in that period? And are you currently working on anything, Matt? I am. I uh, uh, I never stop because there's no reason to stop. And if I did stop, I wouldn't know what the fuck to do anyway. Here, so, here. <laughs> so we, just carry, we carry on. Um, I uh, we're, Maybe to cut right to it is that uh, we're currently, when COVID came in, we had two shows ready to go in Utah. And because of COVID, it all crapped out. So during COVID, I decided to try and change pace a little bit with my with my writing partner and my producing partner. And we've written a uh, five or six part series, which is completely written. It's a crime series, which we're going to shoot in Italy and it's just been picked up. So probably the rest of this year, I'll be in Italy shooting a series for television. Awesome. What wow. kind of happened and what happened to me kind of career wise is after I finished the, the disappearance, which didn't have a great run distribution wise, I started to really look at America. And I this is the time when the Jerry Harvey thing kicked in and I had all my shows being shown on Z channel. I want to come to Z channel before we finish. And, uh, and I was just sucked into this huge mini series, you know, really three years of my life because the preparation took half a year. The shooting was a year plus, you know, the post-production was almost another half a year back in Los Angeles. So that occupied my time. But what it did do is it put me steadily, Without even knowing it, it put me deadly in the center of TV land. Mm-hmm. I was at NBC, and they started asking me to do every mini mini series on Earth. So I went straight away, and I did the Long Hot Summer. Mm-hmm. I then did an even bigger mini series with Sophia Loren, which was um, which was produced by Car- Carlo Ponti. Oh, yeah. I shot that in Yugoslavia, based on a really important and uh, good book by Mario Puzo, his best book actually, The Fortunate Pilgrim, mm-hmm. Autobi- mm-hmm. an autobiographical book. So I was suddenly in the world of the miniseries, you know? And then I moved from the miniseries world to kind of television and movie of the week until kind of late, the beginning of 2000, I'd had it with television and I started to want to work my way back to feature films Mm -hmm. and getting that, making that change became really uphill. Um, I also realized I had a talent for writing. So I was doing an awful lot of writing for other producers and other directors, which kept me going. And uh, anyway, time goes by. And here we are. And here we are. And here we are. It's <laughs> brilliant. It's been a very long career, hasn't it, actually? You know, uh, from yeah, the 60s. Are you still working now? I mean, you must be in your 70s oh, yeah. now. Yeah, I am. I When people ask me my age, I say I'm on the wrong side of 60. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking really well. You're looking fantastic. You're looking better than us well, two put together. Well, it's the work, you know. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's the work. It's, you know, if... If, if it drives you and you're passionate about it, it keeps you going. Yeah. There's a real benefit to being consistent through life. If you're the same person you are when you're older as you were when you were younger. Right. And besides, man, don't like think of it any other way. But be, the, 70 is the new 65. So you're yeah. ahead of the game. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason I the reason I threw the Z channel up at the beginning is because it's been kind of an, an important thread through the story. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes goes to hear and it helps to answer your final question which i believe and finally who is stanley kubrick and i thought about that and so and the z channel thing started to play in my mind so john alcott had a heart attack 
I think he was 54, 55. He had a heart attack buying a newspaper on the Quasette in Cannes, dropped dead. Mm. I was working in Hollywood at that time. I'm not sure which miniseries I was doing, but I was actually working in Hollywood when I heard that Johnny had passed. And I got a call right away from the Z Channel, and the Z Channel wanted to do a, they wanted to do a tribute to Alcott, a major tribute, like an hour and a half thing. And they wanted me to come on and be interviewed on it by their monitor, who was at that time was going to be Charles Champlin, yeah. the edit, the main critic. Mm -hmm. And um, I said I'd be happy to do it. And while they were talking to me, they said, "Would Stanley? Could you get Stanley? Because they knew I knew Stanley." And they said, "Could you get Stanley? Would he do an interview uh, for John?" And I said, "I asked. No. Yes, I hope he would. Yes. I mean, they were great friends. I'm with." One of the best, you know. Um, so I called, I called, uh, I called Stanley. I think The Shining is gone. I'm not, I think he'd done the, or not, The Shining was gone. What I'm trying to say, I'm not sure at this point in time whether he was working on Full Metal Jacket or he'd finished it. I'm not quite sure what, where, where he was at the moment. Um, I got him on the phone. He knew John had passed. He'd heard. I said, listen, Stanley, um, I've been asked to do, they want to do a tribute on the Z Channel explained what all that was, and they would really, really like just three minutes of you. If you could do five, it would be great, but three minutes would be enough. He said, well, let me think about it. Call me back next week. So I said, fine. Call him back fast. He said, look, I, I'm not happy. I'm not comfortable being – I don't want to be videoed. I don't want to be seen on screen. Um, I said, okay. He said, is it, if, is it okay if I do a voice? I'll do a voice. I said, fine. I'd love to see you on screen. He said, no, I won't do that. Mm -hmm. I said – but I'll do a voice and I'll do a tribute to John and I'll send you the tape, which he did, which he did do. Mm. Um, was that aired? Was that aired on the Z channel, that interview? And it was, and it was shown. It was very short. It was very nice. It was a bit scratchy because he obviously did it on his crappy little cell phone or whatever he did it on, you know, but at least it was a tribute, you know? A few days ago, Stanley Kubrick, who worked with John Alcott starting on Space Odyssey, sent us an audio cassette expressing his great admiration for Alcott. The next voice you hear will be the rarely heard Stanley Kubrick talking about John Alcott. I first worked with John Alcott on 2001, A Space Odyssey, on which he started out as an assistant cameraman to Jeff Unsworth. I was immediately impressed with him. He was serious, dedicated, intense in a quiet and unassuming way and always completely trustworthy. I liked him a lot. During the year of special effects photography, which followed the main unit shooting, John worked with me on the model photography, for which he received screen credit. This started him off on a career which ended with him being regarded as one of the top cameramen working today. John also worked with me on A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining, and contributed much to those films. John was tough-minded, dependable, and loyal, and everyone who worked with him knew the fire that burned within. So I called Stanley, I think it was the third call, after, after the Tribute was over. Yeah. I said the tribute went very well. Everybody's very appreciative of your voice message, all the rest of it. And we just kind of chatted for a minute. And I said to Stanley, and this is the this is 
the answer to your question, your end question. I said, Stanley, so what are you working on? Hmm. And he said, I have to, I wrote it down actually. He said to me, Well, Stu, you know, it takes me two years to prepare a film. I said, Yeah, I understand. And he said, But I'd really like to make a film that makes a difference. Yeah. So to have somebody who's already made so many films that have already made a difference, mm-hmm. to have such a consummate director with yeah. all his bugaboos and all the rest, such a consummate director say to another director or say to anybody, I would just like to make a film that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And they're forgetting. It speaks to what yeah. we know about him being interested to use the, a, a poor choice of words for it. The, the, the concept of changing the form. He was always talking in certain conversations about how much he would like to change the form in cinema as if he hadn't done that enough already. But I think if, if we're referring to eyes wide shut, that's something that was very personal to him. He worked yes. on it for nigh on 40 years since his first, uh, notes perhaps but then to have him say that he felt it was his greatest contribution to cinema i think is one of those things that takes a lot of kubrick fans aback because plenty of people do struggle with the idea that kubrick would name that as his greatest contribution to cinema others wouldn't but you know there you have it i mean he may have felt like with his you know final effort uh that he had done something as close to changing the form uh, as he was capable. Well, it speaks to, um, it does speak to that. And it, and it speaks to a man who is all film. I mean, he's all film. He, 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 he lived and it was film entire life. That's it from morning mm-hmm. to night. It was all mm-hmm. But it also speaks perhaps a little bit to the work that he hadn't done or the work that he wanted to yeah. do yeah. or the work that he thought that he could may have done better. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it, it, it necessarily plays to a lack of confidence, but it's in that zone right. where we all do things and say, fuck, you know, mm. if I just, you know, we all have that about us creatively. Sure. Of course. And, and that's, and that's part of our, that's part of you our. You have energy. to be your own toughest critic. Of course. You know, so it speaks to that. Um, but for somebody who was so, so um, beyond many, many other directors to actually say that he just wants to make a film that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. At a period of time, that particular period of time, it just speaks volumes. So that's, to your mind, you know, the the answer to the question, who was Stanley Kubrick? That's my answer. It's a beautiful answer. Yeah, fantastic. We love it. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's still reaching and he still has that passion and that belief right. that he can make something magical that will make a complete difference that you've never seen before. So that's, that's where he's at. That's mm-hmm. where his head is at. And that's, and that's what his, that's what his being was about. Mm. And it's amazing. And his films will continue to be watched for a long time. I would imagine, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. As long yeah. as films exist. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're going to have, you know, to, to, theorize that 100 years from now, at least, if not beyond, someone teaching film at university is going to be teaching the next generation of filmmakers about Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. 
Well, just think in 20 years, somebody pulls out paths of glory to take a look. Right, right. I mean, imagine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let's bring up the fact that the recent, um, was it the Guardian newspaper who recently did um, the top 20 war movies of all time? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Path of Glory was in there and also was Overlord, Stuart's yeah, Overlord. Yep. Was, was yeah, it, was wow, in there. that's yep. right. That's right. Absolutely that amazing. That was a total surprise. My partner found it. It came up uh, on page completely by surprise. I was amazed. I had no idea they were doing it. But, you know, it keeps you going. It sure. Keeps, uh, it keeps the buzz. Amazing. So, you think? Yeah. You think that places him in good company, Stephen? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> you think that places Stuart in good company? Oh, absolutely. It helps. Yeah, it helps. <laughs> I don't know. The jury's still out. <laughs> you know what's common, what's kind of common, less with some directors, probably less with Stanley, <clears throat> because he had such a hold on, on his career, and he was actually dictating about to people who were financing how it would be, when it would be. So he had complete control of it. But... For me, where I'm coming from, an entirely different place. I had an entirely different career, um, and it's a you know some of it's a, a bit of a, a you know roller coaster ride. But what I have to do and have been doing throughout my life really is constantly having to reinvent myself, mm. always yes. reinvent, yeah. always finding a way. And it gets harder and harder, not because I'm getting older and older, but perhaps, but because everything is changing so much in, in the right, film world. right, you know. We have all this equity stuff going on. We got so much stuff going on that is that is making quotas and things and making it more difficult mm. for filmmakers to get things made because everybody's looking at film in a different way for a different purpose. Right. You know. Right. Yes. So, so one is always having to do that. Stanley, mm. I don't think did that so much, but I think he put that kind of a feeling of reinvention in what is my next movie. Yeah. And oh, will, yeah. It be, will it be the best movie I make? It has to be the best movie. Right. I make. Right. So yeah, it's yeah. this it's this constant reaching. It's uh it's impressive. Thanks so much to Stuart Cooper for that wonderful conversation. Do check out some of his films. We recommend Little Malcolm and His Struggle Against the Unix, which is available on BFI Blu-ray. And, of course, Overlord, available on the Criterion Blu-ray. An amazing transfer. Can't recommend that highly enough. We are also very, very grateful to him for providing us with that audio clip of Kubrick's heartfelt appreciation of John Alcott, which, prior to the broadcast of this episode of Kubrick's Universe, had only been aired once before on Charles Champlin's program on the film scene, originally shown on the legendary Z Channel in Los Angeles in 1986. Don't forget to check out our Facebook group, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, and our Facebook page for this podcast, Kubrick's Universe. We also have two great YouTube channels, again, for the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. And please head over to Patreon and search Kubrick's Universe if you would like to be associated officially with and support this podcast. On behalf of our producer, editor, and wizard of odd, Stephen Rigg, I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, saying thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Over and out.
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.